was a play uh, by Jean-Paul Sartre uh, called No Exit. So I got the pronunciation right there. Tried to. Um, called No Exit. He was an existential philosopher. I imagine none of you have seen it. But there's a famous line. Hell is other people. I wonder if you've heard that. Hell is other people. It's very cheery, isn't it? Makes you want to pop out to the theatre. Now, he's stirring the pot a bit. Um, But what he means is human relationships are essentially fraught with conflict. They can be hellish. And our dependence upon other people, on their views about us, their opinions about us, sometimes that can become crushing and a hellish experience. Well, that's Jean-Paul Sartre. Peter, he's writing to people in the pain of exile, isn't he? We've seen that in the first couple of weeks. People who are longing to go home where they belong in the new creation. People who don't feel that they belong are because they're suffering for their faith. As we, as we go through the letter, we see they're being accused of doing wrong. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12. They're suffering for doing good. Chapter 2, verse 20. People in chapter 4, verse 4 are heaping abuse on them. They're the talk of the town. People have probably excluded them from social activities. Uh, You can imagine that at school their children get picked on when they play outside. Why? Because they follow the Lord Jesus. For these Christians, it would probably be easy to believe, wouldn't it, that hell is other people. Their true home is in heaven and life on earth as they are in exile, well it feels like hell. But last week we saw that Peter said their hope of future glory, that's the the, the first bit of chapter one, that certain hope, it should make a difference to life now. Verse 13 turns on the word therefore. Uh, And therefore, because you have that hope, set your hope on the future glory to come. Live in this world where you don't belong by showing where you do belong and who you belong to. Last week we saw what that looks like in our relationship with God, being holy as our God is holy, revering him as father, knowing the security he gives. But what difference does that future hope make to our relationships, not just with God, but with each other now as as we wait for home? How do we live as a community who are in exile with all the pain, not just uh, from, from out there, but the pain that, if we're honest, we can cause each other by our selfishness, by our loose tongues. How do we live as a community in exile? Well, in today's passage, we see that Peter lays out that the hope of future glory should create a community characterised by love. A community that is is not a picture of hell, but of heaven on earth. So, let's dive in. First point. How do we live as a community in exile? Love like the Lord. Love like the Lord. Peter begins, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. 
Um, the kind of big command to, to, to love one another deeply from the heart. That comes at the end of verse 22. But have a look at just what comes before. So we can see the context. Firstly, they've purified themselves. But that means they've been set apart, devoted to the Lord. And how have they done that? Well, by obeying the truth. They've responded to the truths of the gospel call by submitting to them. The, the people in exile had heard the call to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. And they did. They obeyed. So they've been saved from judgment for their sins by trusting in Christ. But Peter goes further. He tells us not just what they've been saved from, but what they've been saved for. Have a listen again to verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have or for sincere love for each other. God's people are saved for sincere love towards one another. We can easily get caught up, can't we, in what we're saved from. That's very important that we lose sight of what we're saved for, what life looks like now. Uh, The Bible has plenty of answers. Uh, We saw holiness. That is one of the things we are saved for last week. Uh, We see as we go through the Bible, adoption, enjoying our relationship with God restored. But another reason we're saved is for sincere love towards one another. That's what each of us who trusts in Jesus is saved for, and that is what heaven will be full of. Now, uh, there are lots of things which end up um, not being used for what uh, they were made for, aren't there? Uh, Apparently, bubble wrap was intended to be a kind of fancy wallpaper. Probably wouldn't last very long in a five-year-old's bedroom. Uh, The slinky, that was made for helping submarines maintain stability. Uh, But they both took on other purposes. Peter wants us to remember what we were saved for here, and particularly for sincere love. That is heaven. That is the future glory that we are, by faith, part of now. And if that's one of the things we're saved for, well, it's natural, isn't it, that he goes on to say, so love one another deeply from the heart. Well, to be honest, we hear those kind of verses in the Bible and we think, oh, that just sounds heavenly, doesn't it? That sounds heavenly. But Peter doesn't want them to get their definition of love from their surroundings. Um, we could probably take a straw poll of, of the room and head out onto the streets uh, of, of how we define love and come up with hundreds of ideas of what love is. And, and some of them would be, would be, would be great, I'm sure. But how does Peter define it for us here? Peter defines it according to our heavenly home. It's love. Did you see it's described as sincere? It's not forced. It's not done out of a twisted elbow. It isn't done out of what you can get in return. It isn't even offered because you click with the person that you are loving simply because they're a brother or sister in need and you can do good for them. I wonder what does that sincere love, who does that remind you of? 
The love is also described, have a look down, as deep or, or fervent. It doesn't easily run out. It has deep reserves. It's strenuous and intense. It might cost time. It might cost energy and money. Whose love does that remind you of? Literally, what the phrases here mean is a love that operates at full stretch. At full stretch. I wonder if you've ever used a a rubber band um, for something. Maybe it needs several wrap rounds to kind of hold something tight. Uh, and maybe you kind of get it fixed and it's, it's kind of holding something together for years uh, because you just sort of get it up and, and leave it. But one day you, you kind of come to find the, the thing that the rubber band's holding together and you take it off and you maybe expect it just to zip straight back into place. Um, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, maybe it just comes apart in your hands. Maybe it kind of goes back a bit, but not not all the way back. The stretching has left a mark, hasn't it? And Peter is saying, sincere love, love at full stretch, it may leave its mark too. I don't know about you, but being saved for this kind of love sounds quite hard, potentially quite painful. Um, over the summer, um, you and I actually planned a bike ride uh, one evening, uh, but as the clouds came in, uh, a few minutes weighing up what we would do, we realised we were both more fair-weather cyclists, and we decided to head for the warmth and dryness of a pub instead. And so easily, our love can be like that too, can't it? Peter's calling here, love that we are saved for, Love for one another, for God's people, it's not a love that gives up at the first sights of rain. When all is sunny, it is easy. But when it's cloudy, it requires much that might make us easily want to turn back. Loving at full stretch is a love that leaves its mark, that doesn't turn back when the storm comes. And some of us here will have seen that love. Perhaps caring for grandparents, looking after parents, or, or even a, a spouse. Um, may I think of my, my granny. She had um, really severe arthritis, which meant the last the 10 years of her life, um, she pretty much needed help doing absolutely everything. Um, washing, dressing, toileting, feeding. Um, and some carers came in and, and helped, uh, but my granddad took the brunt of it. Now, he was far from perfect, um, get him on his own and he'd lose his temper a bit and be pretty free with his language uh, when she wasn't around at least but he helped her to have as full a life as she could when she could do very little in return he didn't give up when the clouds came he loved it at full stretch or at least part of a stretch and it left its mark on him he needed, he needed support we don't do this solo, do we? It has to be sustainable. But it's nonetheless a sacrifice we're called to. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Because the love, if this is the love we're saved for, well, it bears an awful resemblance, or a wonderful resemblance, to the kind of love we are saved by. Jesus loved us, and love left its mark on him when we were at our very worst, when we could offer nothing. The clouds of judgment came in and he 
stayed where he was on the cross. The marks that left love left on him were where are they now? They are at the center of our praises and they will be for eternity. He loved us and so he died for us. The love that we are saved by is the love that we are saved for. So love like the Lord. That is how we live as a community in exile. Uh, But there's more. Have a look down. Peter picks up this idea of love again in chapter 2, verse 1. And this time he's kind of describing love by the shadow side, uh, putting it negatively. Chapter 2, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. What does sincere, fervent, lasting love look like? It looks like ridding ourselves of these attitudes of the heart. There's no place for them because they are the opposites of love. In fact, they are destructive rather than building up. Peter says, since you were saved for sincere love, don't do it insincerely. And this list kind of sounds quite obvious, doesn't it? But I wonder if Peter mentions them because sometimes we may show love on the outside but actually feel some of these things through gritted teeth on the inside. Malice, a kind of bitterness or opposition to the other person. Deceit, letting that heart of malice turn into maybe misleading them a bit, deliberately giving them false information or a false impression. That can turn into hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing the opposite. We don't love people well when we stand in judgment over them. Or maybe we give kind of advice from a place of superiority, sounding as if we've got it sorted, and then a few hours later we realise we've just done the opposite of what we advised. Envy. This is kind of jealousy run riot, isn't it? Not just wanting what someone else has, and maybe a job, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a car, particular results at university, a skill or a gift, a marriage, a family. Not just wanting those things, but actually deep down wishing that somebody you knew or you know didn't have them anymore. And when that car breaks, when that marriage fails, or when the kids make trouble, a little bit of you feels relieved. Because if they can't have it, or if you can't have it, then they shouldn't have it either. Or slander saying things which are untrue, which are offensive about someone when they are not around. Would you speak the same way about someone if they were stood right here? Living as a community of God's people in exile means that there is no place for these attitudes of the heart. There is no place for these in heaven, and so there should be no place for these in God's people on earth. Rid yourselves of these, Peter says. So I've got to say to, to, to all of us here and to myself, if we see these attitudes in our hearts, well, we should, we should go home and, and think about how we can rid ourselves of them tonight. And that may take time. It'll take a lot of prayer and maybe talking to someone uh, to pray for you and, and help you think that through. It's also worth saying technology has made this list a lot easier, hasn't it? No more delay in having to kind of 
write something to somebody, no cost in buying a stamp to send a, a letter. Within two seconds, you can either post a reply on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is, or you can copy a screenshot with, with two buttons of your phone and forward it to thousands of people if you wish. There is great wisdom in waiting and in maybe getting someone else to read your reply first. And this list would be familiar. I'm sure it would be familiar to, to us. It would have been familiar to Peter's audience. As we go through 1 Peter, we see some of these things coming up again. Chapter 2, verse 12, other people are speaking against them. 2, verse 22, Jesus is described as one with no deceit in his mouth. 3, verse 9, Christians are reviled, slandered. 4, verse 4, they're maligned. And in 4, 14, they're insulted because of what they believe. When we experience that, it's so easy to respond by doing the same, isn't it? But as we rid ourselves of these attitudes in our hearts, as we remember the love we were saved for, the love that we've been saved by, we reflect our Saviour's love. We reflect his character. We become a picture of heaven on earth. That sounds great, but how on earth do we do it? That's really hard, isn't it? How? Well, when it comes to loving individuals, it's not easy, is it? We often feel like hell is other people. We have a vision for love, but we struggle to live it out. And Peter says, well, if you want to be someone of sincere love, Peter has a key to unlock it. And this key lies between those two verses about love that we looked at in the heart of our passage. He says, if we're going to love like the Lord, you need to be born again. The enduring living word of God. Have a look at verse 22. The command to love is followed by, for you have been born again, not of imperishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And Peter uses a picture here, a seed and a plant, to kind of pick up on what he's already been teaching them. Um, In 1 verse 3, a couple of weeks ago, we read they've been born again into a living hope that could never perish, spoil or fade. In 1 verse 18, we read they'd be redeemed, not by something perishable, but imperishable. Eternal son's precious blood. And Peter comes at this kind of perishable, imperishable thing from a new angle. The seed and the plant. Now, seeds, what do they do? Plant them and hopefully, all being well, a bit of water, a bit of sun, the right nutrients in the soil. They bear fruit, don't they? We planted a potato earlier this year. A bit of an experiment. And what did we get? Well, we got a plant, and guess what it grew? Some potatoes. There weren't beetroots, there weren't carrots, there weren't runner beans. There were potatoes. The seed matched the plants and the fruit. And in a similar way, Paul says the seed of God's word, when it's planted in our lives, it it bears fitting and appropriate fruit too. The thing is, our potato plant, well, that was perishable. In fact, the reason we put the potato in the ground in the first place was that it was past eating and had gone very yucky. It was already perishable before it went in the ground. And what is true of the seed is true of the fruit, isn't it? The plant that grew did not last, and neither did the potatoes. Mainly, they didn't last because we ate them. But they wouldn't have lasted much longer if we just left them in the ground either. Perishable seed 
brings perishable fruit. But what about an imperishable one? Uh, Peter says, the seed of God's word that has been sown in our hearts is not perishable. It is living. It endures forever. Uh, He makes it again, verse 24, for all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. When the word was preached, when these Christians obeyed the truth and responded in faith and repentance, the imperishable word was planted in their hearts. It was planted in our hearts too. And just as the perishable seed brings perishable fruit, an imperishable seed brings imperishable fruit. The word that endures forever can bring about the fruit of love, a love that can be sincere, that can endure forever, a love that is fit for heaven. God is at work in our hearts. How? He has planted his word there. And as it is read, as it is preached, as we sit under it, by his spirit, he uses it to bear fruit in our lives and make us more like Jesus. So if we want to be more loving, if we want to love like the Lord, what is Peter's answer? Don't just try and muster up more efforts in your own hearts. You might last a little while. But like that rubber band at full stretch, eventually... It'll ping, it'll wither and fail. No, we need help from outside. We need the Holy Spirit to refresh us with the living and enduring word so that we may show sincere and enduring love. That is how we love like the Lord. And that's why Peter says, in order to do that, secondly, we should crave for the words, crave for the word. If we want to love like the Lord, crave for the word. Have a look down at chapter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. Now, God's timing, having me preach on this passage, there's a kind of sense of humour that's not lost on me. Peter is both teaching me about theology and parenting in one place in the same week. Um, If I didn't know already, uh, then I've been reminded here. Babies crave milk. Um, We'll find that out soon enough. And that means when we have um, our little boy, Sophie is going to be much more vital to him in a particular way than I am. Everyone who I've spoken to has said, get sleep while you can. Uh, Loads of reasons there, I'm sure. But one of them is that, well, the baby will want milk and babies don't really have much respect for time of day or tiredness or noise levels. I need milk, I crave it, so I will make my presence known at any point I can. But they're not being selfish, are they? They really do need it so they can grow. If they don't, it's life or death. And Peter says, in the same way, Christian believers should crave pure spiritual milk. He's not advocating a kind of school milk scheme. No, another translation puts it pure milk of the word. Pure milk of the word. 
Just like babies crave their mother's milk to grow physically, we should crave the milk of the imperishable word of God. Why? Verse 2, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. If we're going to love like the Lord, then we must crave for the word. But what might that look like? Well, taking the food analogy just a step further than Peter, um, I think the thing isn't so much about how much food or milk you've eaten, that's important, but also about whether you're able to really digest it or not. And that might mean different things for different people here tonight. Some of us, we might know that maybe we do, we do need to eat more of the word. We do need more of this milk of the word. Like a baby not getting enough milk spiritually, we might not be putting on weight or growing in our faith because we hardly ever open up the Bible. We hardly ever think about the sermon that we've heard on Sunday outside of that one time a week. Some of us might know that we, we need more. But some of us might actually be eating more than we can possibly digest. Um, maybe students in particular. I remember my, my um, time as a student, uh, I had kind of two different sermon series going on at church um, and then a separate thing going on at, at the student group and then maybe meeting up with a one-to-one and then you've got CU. Um, it's a privileged time of life. And it's precious, but you need to ask yourself how much of what you're hearing is actually being digested. Better to do less and chew it over properly and reflect and pray it in than kind of get some sort of spiritual indigestion that means all this stuff just goes over your head and you never really think about anything that you've heard. You might need to get um, the equivalent of one of these bowls. Um, I think, here we go. My brother-in-law has got a dog who would literally go to the bowl and wolf the dinner down in about two mouthfuls. So they bought her this bowl, which just forces her to, to slow down so that she can process and go over and mull over um, what she's eaten. Sorry, a bit of a cheesy analogy. But you wouldn't get a dog one from Johnny Clifton. Um, what might this look like? Well, it, it might look like maybe rather than doing a, a, a whole new quiet time on your own um, every day of the week, having a think back about what we, what we preached on Sunday morning or what you looked at in students. Um, it might be the same for, for all of us, going over what God is teaching us as God's people together so that we can learn together. Maybe what you're hearing at Redeemer Women. Maybe what you might be uh, reading with another friend. Or maybe just deciding one verse that you really loved that was picked up on in the Sunday morning sermon or the evening and just thinking, I'm going to write that one verse down and take it with me all week on a piece of paper and think about it, pray it through. That's just a couple of ideas. Maybe you could chat with each other what craving God's word might look like for you. But the thing is, sometimes craving God's word doesn't sound like the best thing on the menu, does it? We're finding that we don't crave God's word because, well, we think there are other things more appealing. Perhaps we're losing sight of what God's word is. 
And as Peter ends, I think he helps us to regain our sight of that. He says in verse 3, before we can crave God's word, we must taste that the Lord himself is good. I wonder if you see the connection. We crave the word because we've tasted the goodness of the Lord. Peter wants us to remember that the word of God is not separate from the Lord himself. We don't pick up our Bibles and kind of read it like an Argos catalogue or a phone book. We don't even read the narrative stories like a Shakespeare play or a novel. It's not written for us to learn facts about God uh, or even a kind of list of things that he's done. It's written to us so that we might know the Lord himself. But as we hear his voice, in a sense we are tasting his goodness. Reading the words, hearing the word preached, is hearing the voice of God. Feasting on the word is a bit like a child pouring over the words, maybe a letter from their loving father. Or a spouse reading the words of their husband, wife or fiancé in a love letter. When we encounter God's words in the Bible, as it is preached and taught, there's a sense in which we encounter the Lord himself and we can taste that he is good. As we taste his goodness, we begin to crave more. Well, how do we live as a community in exile? We love like the Lord by craving for the word. Um, But I can't finish just without one small warning, perhaps is the right word. What is craving for the word supposed to lead to? Love. Craving the word is supposed to lead to love. But it can easily lead to pride, can't it? We see it in the Bible, puffing up. It's easy sometimes when we rightly emphasise the importance of God's word to become quite proud when maybe um, another church or a, or a parachurch organisation does something, kind of sets something up, they have a different approach to worship. Maybe we become a bit judgmental about a ministry that might be really good but doesn't seem to be, they don't talk about the word very much. And there's a place to engage with that. But a proud heart... A puffed up mind from studying the word and just thinking, well, these guys have got it wrong. Well, that is about as far as loving like the Lord's as it could possibly be, isn't it? So be careful that you crave for the word for the right reasons. Not to master it, not to show off or have the right answers, not to stand above the word in judgment, but to be mastered and transformed by it. Because as we read it, we are mastered and transformed by the Lord himself. Crave it as you would crave a letter from your father or mother, from the lover of your soul, the Lord Jesus. Crave it because you've tasted the Lord's goodness and you want more. Crave it because we want to be a loving community of heaven on earth. And as we crave it, we will feel the frailty of our love, but reassured he's helping us day by day to love like the Lord. And we'll fail many times But one day, our love will reflect his. Let me just close with uh, a little quote from a sermon from Jonathan Edwards. The sermon is called, Heaven is a World of Love. 
and it looks ahead to when we, when we get home and the place of love that heaven will be and the relationship of our love now to our love then. Let me read these words. That which was in the heart on earth as but a grain of mustard seed shall be a great tree in heaven. The soul that in this world had only a little spark of divine love in it, in heaven shall be, as it were, turned into a bright and ardent flame, like the sun in its fullest brightness, when it has no spot upon it. Let's just take a moment to reflect and then I'll pray.